Well, why don't we open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are continuing our journey through this book, and we are in Acts chapter 5. We are looking at verses 17 through 42 today. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42, says this. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. 
Thus ends our reading of God's unyielding word. May all who hear it understand the victory that our God brings. One of, one of the illustrations that Jesus used when describing the kingdom of God was that of a mustard seed. In the Gospel of Matthew, he said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. What, what Jesus meant by this is, is that in its beginnings, God's kingdom appears small and weak. And yet given time, it becomes far greater than all the other plants that find root in the garden. In fact, it becomes this lasting tree that is firm, that is secure, a home for those who are seeking refuge. I believe that we are seeing this illustration being played out in the book of Acts. What, what seems to be weak to mortal man is actually strong and mighty. You see, to a, to a dying world, this, this message of a crucified Savior who has now risen from the dead and has ascended to his Father in heaven, it, it seems all but a fairy tale, a farce. And yet, this gospel message has real power, does it not? And it is building this unassailable kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be torn down. And this is proven to be true in our text for today. But before we jump in, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. What is the, the buildup to these verses that we've just read? Last Sunday, we, we saw God answering the prayers of his saints, did we not? If you remember, it was right after the Sanhedrin had placed a ban on preaching the name of Jesus that the church then gathered together. They, they prayed to their God, seeking his will concerning this matter. And if you recall, there were three petitions that the church had placed at their father's feet. One, that God would look upon their threats. Two, for, for God to grant them to continue to speak his word with all boldness. And three, for God to continue to heal and to perform signs and wonders in order to validate the name of Jesus. And we saw that God had answered these prayers for these, for these men and women in the passages we read last week, right? For one, the, the, the church continued to openly meet in Solomon's portico, right? Right next to the temple demonstrating that, that, that God had granted them the boldness that they needed to continue to speak his word. Two, we, we, we saw the signs and wonders, right? As, they, the, as the apostles continued to, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And finally, three, we, we saw that God had set up a, a hedge of protection around them as there was both a great fear throughout the city concerning these Christians as well as a great esteem for the kind of people that God had formed them into. And this had made it very, very difficult for these religious leaders to enforce their ban. And yet as time went on, and as the church was growing more than ever, 
this Sanhedrin, this religious council decided that enough was enough. They could stand by no longer, and so they took action. Let's look at our passage once again. Look at, look at verses 17 and 18, and let's see what this council did. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And so once again, we, we see the arrest of the leaders of the church, right? Only this time, it's not just Peter and John, but, but all of the apostles, all 12 of them. And once again, who's behind this? The high priest and the Sadducees. Now, why is this the case? And think about what's going on. This, this kingdom movement had been growing rapidly. And it had been doing so upon the front steps of the temple, right? It was in Solomon's portico, the, the territory of these Sadducees where these Christians were gathering and evangelizing. In other words, these apostles of Jesus were moving in on the Sadducees' turf, right? And so it makes perfect sense when Luke describes the motivation behind this arrest as jealousy. Now, if these Christians had, had remained a small group, I'm sure the Sadducees probably wouldn't have even taken notice. But because the church kept growing and, and growing and growing, and because they were held in high regard among the people, they became a threat. And so what do these Sadducees do? They arrested the leaders, right? Let's chop it off at the head. This was something that Jesus had warned his disciples about many times, is it not? Look at, look at Luke 21, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And so Jesus had, had promised to his disciples that they were going to be persecuted. And now this promise was coming to fruition. And yet, as we'll see in our passage, these disciples were well prepared. Know this. When you follow Jesus, it will always lead to enmity with the world. When you follow Jesus, it will always lead to enmity with the world. And that's because the world desires its own kingdom, does it not? And when you proclaim Jesus as your king, you're, you're, you're proclaiming a different kingdom, a kingdom they do not want. Let's, let's continue on with our passage. Look at, look at verses 19 through 21. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. As if we needed more evidence, we, we, we once again see that God is looking out for his people, is he not? 
Here we see this miraculous escape by these men as the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and freed them. Freed those who were unjustly arrested. And yet, as we'll soon discover, this escape wasn't for the purpose of the apostles' freedom, was it? No. For, for God was sending them to, to, to the exact place where they would be shortly arrested again. But if, but if that was the case, then, then why free them at all? Might I suggest to you that, that the purpose of this escape was to send a message. Now, now, now think about this. Why did God send his angel to do this thing? Why, why did the, what did the angel say to these men? Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When you consider this command, what, what was the message that God was communicating? Well, for one, that, that these apostles should pay no heed to the ban on, G, on Jesus' name. That despite the danger, they, they should not shrink back. Rather, they should remain bold in their proclamation. And what were they to pro- proclaim? All the words of this life. In other words, the, the life of their resurrected Lord. And, and notice the word all in there. They, they were to preach all of it, right? These men were not to hold anything back. They were to speak all of the words of this life and not just some. In other words, they must not water down the message or, or, or omit any portion of the gospel that might get them into trouble. How do these apostles respond to the angels' instructions? They were obedient, right? They were obedient to God's command. They ignored the ban on Jesus' name. They went up to the temple and they began to teach. They were proclaiming the name of Jesus. Dear friends, know this. When you follow Jesus, he is calling you to be his public witness. When you follow Jesus, he is calling you to be his public witness. You see, the gospel, it it isn't something that we hide away. Rather, it is to be declared openly for all to hear. And so this message that God was sending to these apostles by having them go to the temple and preach Christ was that they were to not be afraid to openly defy this ban on the name of Jesus. And yet, it wasn't just to the apostles whom God was sending a message, now was it? The, the, the fact that this angel sent them directly to the temple, to this very public setting on their enemy's turf, that meant something. It, it was as if God was trying to prove a point to the, to the religious leaders. And what was that point? That this truly is his will. That the name of Jesus is going to be proclaimed. And neither the Sadducees nor any other human authority would be able to thwart God's plans. Let's let's continue with our passage and see how this plays out. Look at at verses, uh, the end of verse 21 through 25. 
Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent them to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in the prison are are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I hope you see the irony in all of this. I mean, this, this whole council, this Sanhedrin had gathered And yet these men were clueless when it came to the whereabouts of their prisoners. They they believed that they had things under control, that they had a, a firm grip on the situation. And yet they were not in control, were they? Their prisoners had escaped and were now proclaiming the very name that they did not want proclaimed. I mean, consider what was reported by the officers. For one, they reported that the prison doors had been locked. It was secure. It was held tight. Also, the, the guards were, were standing at their posts. They, they weren't derelict in their duties. And finally, we, we, we see that when they opened the prison doors, nobody was inside. Here, here's what you need to understand. What, what is being communicated to these men was that the impossible happened, Right? This was a miraculous jailbreak. I mean, how else did they get past that door? And how else did they get past those guards? This was beyond the realm of possibility. And that is why we see the Sanhedrin being greatly perplexed, wondering what would come of this. And yet if that wasn't enough, then suddenly they they get another report. Another messenger comes to them. These apostles, they've been found, right? And yet, where were they found? They were at the temple doing exactly what the council had forbade. They were preaching the name of Jesus and of all places in the temple. Now, now think about this. What was God doing? What God was doing was he was showing these men that they were not in control. That there was a greater hand at play and that they should not interfere. But this begs the question, did they understand what God was saying? And if they did, would they listen? Would they let well enough alone and leave these men be? read further. Look at, look at verses 26 through 28. <clears throat> then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood Upon us. Instead of listening to what God was telling them, they they brought these men 
in and put them on trial. But notice how, how even this was a difficult thing to do, was it not? I mean, the, the, the captain and these officers, they had to be extra cautious when arresting these men. And what was the reason for this? Because they were afraid. They thought that they might get stoned by the people. Luke is, is letting us know that, that another large crowd had formed around these apostles and that the people were hanging on their every word. The gospel was once again having a powerful, powerful effect. And the enemies of the gospel knew this quite well. But, no, but, but notice also that, that these apostles, they went with these guards freely, didn't they? They didn't try to fight back. They, they didn't try to muster up the crowd to attack these men. They could have, but they didn't. Rather, they allowed themselves to be arrested because they trusted in their king, because they were not afraid. And when you have the almighty God on your side, really, what is there to be afraid of? What can man do to you? Dear friends, know this. When, when you follow Jesus, he is calling you to trust in him through even the worst of circumstances. When you follow Jesus, he is calling you to trust in him through even the worst of circumstances. Now, this might not mean your arrest, but it will mean that there will be a loss. Could be a loss of a job. It could be the loss of your reputation, the loss of brotherhood and sisterhood, the loss of friendship. And yet Jesus is calling upon you to trust in him. Now, now there are there were three things that the Sanhedrin accused these men of, that the high priest accuse him of when he questioned them. One, they had been ignoring the ban on the name of Jesus, right? They continued to preach his name. Two, they, they have filled the city with their teaching. And so it, it, it was going out everywhere. And, and three, they have continued to blame the Sanhedrin for the death of their Messiah. Now, I believe that it is this last accusation where we find the source of their vitriol, of their hatred towards these apostles. For they were constantly being reminded of their guilt and the death of this Jesus. And yet it was the first accusation that posed serious trouble for these apostles. For, for they had disobeyed a direct decree from the Sanhedrin. And that was a punishable punishable offense. How, how would these apostles respond? Look, look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. We've seen these words before, have we not? 
What, what the Apostle Peter is doing here is he is demonstrating their, their loyalty to their Messiah. Neither he nor the rest of these apostles would back down when it came to the message of Jesus Christ. And Peter was making it very, very clear that they were going to continue to preach his name no matter the cost. That calling's upon us as well. Know this, when, when you follow Jesus, you are declaring your allegiance to a heavenly kingdom. When you follow Jesus, you are declaring your allegiance to a heavenly kingdom. And that is because the call of the gospel supersedes any commandments of men. Listen, there, there may come a time when the preaching of the gospel is outlawed in America. And just like these apostles, you will have to decide whether you will obey God or whether you will obey men. For when it comes to his commission, there is no middle ground. And that's because there is no human decree that can overturn the calling of our Lord. But that wasn't the end of Peter's words, was it? Look at, look at verses 30 through 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So not only did Peter say that they would continue to speak the name of Jesus, but now he was demonstrating their defiance right before their council. He spoke the truth of the gospel to them. That Jesus had been raised from the dead by God the Father, vindicating him from the injustice that he suffered. And Peter made note, he made it very, very clear that this injustice came from the very hands of the men in that room. I mean, what did Peter say? Whom, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I mean, talk about bold, right? Peter demonstrated that his boldness by the fact that he stated this right after being accused of doing this very thing, right? I mean, this must have driven these leaders nuts. They had just blamed the apostles for bringing this man's blood upon their own heads. And now here, Peter just did it one, one more time, right? Oh, you haven't had enough? <laughs> and that's because Peter won't hesitate for a second to proclaim the whole of the gospel, even when it is offensive. This didn't help his case at all. Let me just say that. But, but he went on to explain further how this Jesus, whom they had crucified and whose name they had banned, had now ascended into heaven and that he was now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so while they might think that they are the ones who are ruling over Israel, the reality of the matter is that this one whom they had crucified truly has all the power. He is Israel's leader. He is Israel's Savior. And what is he saving his people from? 
He saves them from their sins. He grants them repentance and forgiveness. That those who turn away from their unbelief and their wicked deeds and turn towards him in faith, that they will find that they have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That they will be rescued from the wrath that is to come. And then Peter finished his defense by stating that both he and these other apostles were witnesses of all of these things. To Jesus' death, to Jesus' resurrection, to his ascension. And this was why they were compelled to speak. For the truth demands it. But not only were they witnesses, but so too is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was affirming the truth of all of this since the day of Pentecost, right? For he had made himself manifest in the lives of those who proclaimed this Jesus as their king. Dear friends, this was Peter's defense. This was how he responded to these accusations. His, his response was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that. His defense is the gospel. He didn't need anything else. He, he simply proclaimed Jesus as his king, as his savior. And that's because the gospel message is the only message that truly has power. And this is the defense of every Christian. Know this. When you follow Jesus, the gospel message will be your defense. Amen. Amen. When you follow Jesus, the gospel message will be your defense. You don't need to rely on anything else. You just need to rely on Jesus, both in who he is and what he has done. That he is God in human flesh. That he is both Lord and Savior. That he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And that he now sits at the right hand of his Father, where he rules from above. That is your defense. Let's, let's see how the Sanhedrin responded to such a defense. Look at, look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Well, Peter's defense didn't go over well, did it? And that's because the gospel message is not neutral, right? It is either the pleasing aroma or the stench of death. And what we see here is that it had created this distaste in the mouths of these religious leaders. And why had it done this? Because it revealed their true hearts, that they were wicked to the core. And that by only, only by bending the knee to this Jesus would they be able to find any forgiveness, something which they refused to do. What would they rather do? They would rather kill these apostles. Luke tells us that they were so enraged that they had murder in their hearts. You see, what the, what the world ultimately desires is the death of Jesus. And yet because the world cannot touch him, they will attack the next best thing. 
those who are his disciples. Know this, when, when you follow Jesus, the world desires your death. When you follow Jesus, the world desires your death. And this is exactly what we see from the Sanhedrin. They, de they desired the deaths of these apostles. And yet before they could act, an unexpected voice entered the room. Look at, look at verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now, now who was this Gamaliel? We know some things about him. We, knew, we know he was a scribe and a Pharisee. And Luke tells us that he, he was held in honor by all the people. In fact, we know from history, from, from the works of Josephus, that, that he was one of the most highly regarded rabbis of the first century. He, he was said to have a wisdom that, that far exceeded his peers. And that he was even the first to be called Rabban, which means our rabbi, or the people's rabbi. Bottom line, when, when he spoke, people listened. Even those who were his enemies, such as the Sadducees, because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they just didn't like each other. And it was on this day that they listened to him once again. Well, let's see what he had to say. Look at, look at verses 35 through 39. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, being a Pharisee, I doubt this Gamaliel would have been a fan of either Jesus or these men. And yet here he seems to be sympathetic. Now, now why would that be the case? I think in one sense, I think God was using him indirectly in speaking for his apostles. And yet, probably deep down in Gamaliel's heart, he was probably not defending the prisoners per se, but rather probably trying to defend the honor of the Sanhedrin. I mean, think about the situation. Luke tells us that that this council was so enraged that they wanted to kill all 12 apostles. Now, what kind of look would that be if the Sanhedrin suddenly killed 12 men all at once? How would that go over with the people? Particularly now that these, these men were held in high regard and had sway over the masses. And this is why Gamaliel told them, told them to, to take care about their work about what they were about to do. He, he wanted cooler heads to prevail. 
And, and thus he, he, he laid forth this argument based on historical precedent, right? He, he cited two examples, two movements that did not last. First, he mentions this Theodos who, who had gathered 400 men to himself in an effort to rebel against Rome. And yet the status died, and along with him, so did his movement. And then there was Judas the Galilean, who led a revolt that was spurred on because of a Roman census. And likewise, he too died, and all of his followers were scattered to the wind. Bottom line, false messiahs had been popping up throughout the time of Israel's captivity under Rome. And each and every time, these things came to nothing. And each and every time, the Sanhedrin never really got involved. And, and this is why this Gamaliel advised these men to leave it alone. For, for according to him, just like Theodos, and just like Judas the Galilean, Jesus, this leader of this new movement, had died. And if it truly was a man-made movement, then just like all the rest of them, it would eventually come to nothing. And so the better thing to do would be to let God decide their fate. For movements that have human origins inevitably fail. But, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. How prophetic are his words. And yet they're ironic as well. I mean, how much evidence did these men need to see that this was from God? Simply on that day alone, God had demonstrated to this council that he was fully behind this movement. From the miraculous jailbreak to the apostles proclaiming the name of Jesus once again at the temple... God was speaking loud and clear to this council, and he was saying to them, this is of me. And yet their ears were plugged, and they would not listen. They refused to believe, even, even though deep down they knew it to be true. And yet Gamaliel's argument was persuasive enough for these religious leaders and they chose to wait things out, at least for the time being. But, but not without first sending a message. Look, look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The, the decision of this council to flog these men was, was an attempt to change their thinking through the use of pain. Perhaps when they laid on their backs that night after, uh, after the beating and feeling the, the throbs from their wounds, they would begin to rethink their commitment to this Jesus. For these punishments would keep coming, and perhaps something even worse would happen to them if they continued to speak that name. Dear friends, know this. When you follow Jesus, it will always lead to suffering. When you follow Jesus, it will always lead to suffering. That's what Jesus has promised us. 
Well, look at John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I know it's not fun to think about. Like, why are we following this, this man if he promises us sufferings, promises us persecution? Let me tell you why. Look at, look at our next verse. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they, had, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. How did they respond? These men rejoiced. They were rejoicing. Now, now, now how does suffering equal rejoicing? Look at, look at Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Again, the words of our Lord. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. In their, in their suffering, these apostles had now joined the prophets of old. Men like Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Men who had pleased their God even when it had cost them everything. These 12 apostles had now been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And in Jesus' eyes... They had pleased their master. And let me tell you, there is no greater joy knowing that your king is pleased. Dear friends, know this. When you follow Jesus, it will always lead to joy. When you follow Jesus, it will always lead to joy. And that joy will be so much greater than any suffering you will ever experience. And so let me ask you, are, are you willing to suffer for your Lord? More importantly, do, do you see suffering as a privilege? Because that's what it is. It means that you have honored your king and sought his glory alone. As American Christians, we, we, we need to start changing our mindset when it comes to what it means to be in Christ's kingdom, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to joy. We need to adopt Christ's view of these things and not our own. And joy, joy will lead to greater and greater things. What, what do we see the apostles doing after they had been beaten? Look at our last verse. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Do you see it? 
They continued to preach the name of Jesus both publicly and privately. They, they ignored the ban and worried not about the repercussions. In, in fact, these, these apostles continued to preach the name, the name of Jesus. When they did this, it only demonstrated further that Jesus truly is enthroned, did it not? And that it, that it is to these 12 apostles that, that Christ has given leadership over Israel. Those, those faithless members of the Sanhedrin had been dethroned. And they were powerless to do anything about it. And that's because the name of Jesus is powerful, is it not? Listen, what these apostles knew is that when you follow Jesus, you are following the one who cannot be overthrown. That when you follow Jesus, you have entered into an unassailable kingdom. It is like that mustard seed that continues to grow and grow, and it cannot be stopped. Dear friends, God's kingdom will prevail. And there is no human power that, that can even put a dent into it. And the more you realize this, the more you will be willing to put your own neck on the line for his kingdom. For any suffering that you might experience, and you will experience suffering, it will turn into great, great joy. For, for you will find out that you too will have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And there is no greater joy than to be found worthy in the eyes of your king. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this day because you are our sovereign king. There is no authority on this earth that is higher than you. And there is no kingdom, either of men or of demons, that can withstand your kingdom's approach. And so we ask you that, that you would grant to us the boldness that we need to proclaim your name, to proclaim the name of your Son, to proclaim the name of Jesus. And may we be willing to suffer for the, the glory of your Son, as we owe him our very lives. And when that suffering does come, may we count it all joy, knowing that you have counted us as worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.